So today I want to talk a little bit about retreat practice and how it might be relevant to our creative life. So I'm going to begin by describing uh, some of my experiences at the beginning of my practice, which was back in the... Is this too loud? No. Um, Okay. Um, Thank you. This was back in the late 70s and early 80s. And of course, at that time, being a, having lived through the 60s and the 70s, there was a lot of interest at that time in exploring the mind in non-traditional ways through psychedelics, through breath work, through transpersonal psychology came into being around that time and people were were looking at the mind the human mind in a in a more in a new way in a more adventurous way you could say than than the traditional uh systems of philosophy and psychology were so to go on a meditation retreat in that context seemed like a next obvious obvious step in exploring the far reaches of my inner world. And at that time, it was, very little was known about meditation. There were very few books about meditation. It wasn't touted as a great uh, remedy for stress or for healing like it is now. It was almost impossible to find out anything about it. But it had a lure to it because of this um, sense of exploration and adventure. It was more like an adventurous experiment. And the only people I knew who had sat for long periods were the teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, they were my first teachers. They were the only people I knew who could tell me about what this involved and what it would what what the benefits were. And I thought they were pretty amazing people. So I signed up for my first three month course. I kinda like jumping in to the deep end of the pool. So I did. And my friends and I, some friends came along, and we were wondering, what will happen if we sit in silence for three months? What will happen to us? How expanded would our consciousness actually get? Would my head explode? Would I forget who I was? Would I end up a wandering ascetic with a shaved head and wearing a robe? I had no idea what would happen. But I was interested. So I went off to my first three-month silent retreat at Insight Meditation, and I survived. And in some ways, my hunch was right. I did uh, learn a tremendous amount. It was a great adventure, and I learned a tremendous amount. I did, my head did not explode. I did not forget who I was. I didn't end up as a homeless wanderer. But I experienced a deepening connection with the inner world, which felt like coming home. 
I loved to hear the teachings of the Buddha. Loved it, couldn't get enough. I had insights which changed my view of things, myself and the world. I love being with people who were resonating with the teachings and the deep journey of meditation. We knew we were onto something significant, even though we were viewed like by our families with great suspicion, like we had joined some cult or something. But there we were in this old building in the countryside of New England, discovering happiness. Really, that was, that was this pith essence of it. I remember one morning waking up in this barren room, you know, with peeling paint on the walls and windows that wouldn't close properly and had a futon on the floor. And I remember lying there and thinking, I am so happy. I've never been so happy in my whole life. And it was really confusing to the mind that had been conditioned by the culture to think that I needed stuff, the accoutrements, the good life in order to be happy. So my life was never the same after that first three-month adventure. It brought a lot of clarity to spend hours, days, weeks doing little else. Sitting, walking, eating, sleeping, a little yoga, although that was sort of frowned upon. Shining the light of awareness into my moment-to-moment experience Who would have thought that that would provoke a radical new view of things, of seeing life and reordering my sense of priorities and what was valuable to me? In other ways, it was a very mysterious process. For one thing, the schedule, very uniform every day, but what I found was that the practice itself was very unpredictable. I saw that I never knew what the next sitting or the next hour might reveal. I might be imagining that that sitting would be very painful and only to be surprised by unaccustomed ease. I might imagine that I was finally concentrated on my way to full enlightenment only to be met by an emotional upheaval. I learned that the process was not predictable. It was full of unexpected twists and turns and that I was not in charge of it. And then I learned something even more useful and that was that it was okay. That I didn't need to be in charge of it in the same way that I was in charge of, you know, writing a laundry list or something like that. I learned that the process unfolds according to its own laws, in its own time, and that it could be trusted. The process could be trusted. I learned that the process has an intelligence about it. 
it might look really weird. And even to this day, I think it looks kind of weird. I'll come to Spirit Rock and I see these people walking around like zombies. And I think, what in the world does this have to do with anything, you know? But actually, appearances are deceiving. It doesn't lead to some permanent altered state of dissociation and, you know, barely barely connected to what's going on. It doesn't do that at all. It leads in the opposite direction. It leads actually to greater sense of sanity, of presence, of wisdom, of compassion, of, of aliveness, of being. It does need tending and it needs some guidance. Teachers need... I needed guidance on that first three months course. I relied so much on the teachers to find my way through this unknown territory of practice. But this is not to say that the teachers could tell me what to expect or what was going to happen next. In some way, when we are on retreat, we are on our own, in our own mysterious unfolding process and every person's process is unique and different how it unfolds how it opens how it contracts what its timing is this is unpredictable and not entirely controllable and on this retreat we see this out in out in the open in the painting studio and you look around, everybody's painting is, couldn't be more different, could it? Everybody's expression so unique. Everybody's process happening in its own way, in its own timing. And you hear it in the writing group, how different is each person's journey, but how worthy of respect each of you unfolding in your own unique way. So I want to tell you a story which is relevant to all of this. It's a story I have been resonating with lately and which expresses the more mysterious side of the process that we are engaged in here. And it is the story that some of you I know have heard of how the caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. So I'd like to read one version of the story. Um, I am not a biologist, so I cannot verify for its complete accuracy, but it is a wonderful story. So here it is. When a caterpillar nears its transformation time, it begins to eat ravenously, consuming everything in sight. The caterpillar body then becomes heavy, outgrowing its own skin many times until it is too bloated to move. Attaching to a branch, upside down, we might add, it forms a chrysalis, an enclosing shell that limits the caterpillar's freedom for the duration of the transformation. Within the chrysalis, a miracle occurs. Tiny cells that biologists actually call imaginal cells begin to appear. 
These cells are wholly different from caterpillar cells, carrying different information, vibrating to a different frequency, the frequency of the emerging butterfly. At first, the caterpillar's immune system perceives these new cells as enemies and attacks them. But the imaginal cells are not deterred. They continue to appear in even greater numbers, recognizing each other, bonding together, until the new cells are numerous enough to organize into clumps. When enough cells have formed to make structures along the new organizational lines, the caterpillar's immune system is overwhelmed. The caterpillar body then becomes a nutritious soup for the growth of the butterfly. When the butterfly is ready to hatch, the chrysalis becomes transparent. The need for restriction has been outgrown. Yet the struggle toward freedom has a specific organic timing. Were the chrysalis open too soon, the butterfly would die. As the butterfly emerges, it opens its right wing and its left wing and then flies away. What part of this story grabs your attention? What part of this story do you notice you feel most interested in? This may give you a needed clue about where you are in your own process of transformation or something that might help you or, or encourage you. Maybe in your life you sense the beginning of a transition or change. Maybe you are in the midst of change and feeling lost and confused, doubting yourself. Maybe you are in a period in your life where you feel irrationally hopeful, filled with glimmers of new possibilities, even though you have little to show for it. Maybe you are emerging from a time of darkness or confusion, loss, sensing an emerging peace and freedom of being. However it is, can you imagine or see that wherever you are in your own process is part of an intelligent unfolding process? Rilke, So you mustn't be frightened if a sadness rises in front of you larger than any you have ever seen. If an anxiety like cloud shadows moves over everything you do, you must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life uneasiness, difficulty, misery, since after, all you do, since after all you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside of you. This insight that all of our difficulties can actually be the vehicles of our transformation is really the heart 
of this process, this understanding that we are undergoing some kind of transformation and it involves many different elements, some of them obvious, some of them quite mysterious. There is a, a, young, a young teacher named Vanessa Stone that I've spent a little time with. She's a lovely woman, teacher, shaman. She says over and over to people who come to her, she says, you have in your life right now, just as it is the exact prescription that you need for your awakening. If God or whoever is in charge could design the perfect set of circumstances for your ultimate awakening, your life as it is would be exactly it. Do we believe that? Most of the time not. We say, this is wrong. This should not be happening. I'm in the wrong life. I, I, I see my life somewhere over there in that horizon. But if we took it in, that this might have some truth for us. Rumi, the poet Rumi said, if God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow down to. What a beautiful way to see what's here, what's here. So the caterpillar, in tune with some completely mysterious imperative, does just what is needed for this process to be activated. It eats and it eats and then upside down forms a chrysalis that limits his freedom. Why? (laughs) If it didn't do that, there would eventually be no butterfly. So I'd like to suggest that being on retreat is a bit like being in a chrysalis, meaning a situation of some confinement, of limitation of your usual habits. Being in silence with people you don't know mostly. Not being in charge of things. When do we eat? When do I get up? When do I, when do I get to paint or write? Not in charge. Not having what you want when you want it. Not relying on your loved one's advice to guide you. You are quite alone on retreat, even though we are here with others. You are alone in how your process unfolds and how in, in hand in how you meet what arises. We teachers are here only as midwives, as guides, to help you meet whatever it is that you need to meet. So on that first long retreat, with all the sitting and the walking, I had an, uh, an experience that taught me a lot, even though at the time I, I was not, it wasn't a wanted experience. As I was sitting, I noticed a pain appeared in my back, 
between my scapula. And it would come within 10 minutes of sitting down, this pain. It was a sharp, piercing pain. And I began to think of it as like a knife in my back. And I would try to, you know, move and try to uh, kind of, you know, maybe higher pillows, maybe a chair. Well, nothing really helped with the pain. So I went to my teachers and I told them about it. And when they suggested, you know, they suggested what we all suggest. But at the time it was quite a radical idea to me. And that was that I should pay attention to it, that I should bring this gentle, mindful, precise attention to the experience, the direct experience of the pain. I thought they were like, are you kidding? You've got to be kidding. I'm not going to do that, you know. So I tried all these other things and nothing worked. And then, as it does happen on retreats, mindfulness as the last resort became the the thing to do. So it was, okay, I'll try it, you know. So I would sit there and try to feel the pain. And I could see that it softened a bit, it became a little more bearable, but it still was there. So what to do? So I kept sitting, kept, you know, working with it. And then one day, some kind of miracle occurred where I was sitting, and I still remember it as if it was yesterday, sitting, and lo and behold, I watched the whole thing dissolve. It simply went away. It was like an ice cube melting, something just melting away. It was gone. And I completely didn't believe it because, I mean, I couldn't believe that it would just go away like that. So I was, you know, looking for it to come back, imagining it would come back, but it never came back. It was gone. Now, this was a lesson that I could only have learned in the confinement of a retreat. In my life, I would have looked for other remedies, Advil or massage, chiropractic, anything but just sitting with it. I would not have believed that being alone with the pain for many days, bringing a gentle and persistent attention to it would have dissolved it. I wouldn't have believed it, but it did. Now, I'm not saying that this is the remedy for all pain and that it is true in all circumstances. But for me, this was my experience. And what it did was teach me a great deal about the power of mindfulness, and it increased my confidence in mindfulness as having this capacity to heal and to liberate. Now, Accepting the sort of rules and regulations of being on retreat, accepting the confinement of a retreat goes very much against the grain of our cultural conditioning, does it not? In our culture, we prize having the freedom to do what we want when we want, 
that's it. So you come here and it's like, you got to be kidding. They're telling me what to do. This belief in getting what we want, having what we want, doing what we want, this is very much the stance of the ego, which pretty much defines itself by its success or failure in getting what it wants. That is what our culture uh, encourages. That is what we often believe. The ego likes to be in charge and in control of what happens. So it's quite a different message to hear that it was the Buddha's insight that we suffer and struggle and find ourselves in conflict when we get lost in the demands of the wanting mind, that we believe that that is the way to happiness. The Buddha offered a word, tanha, which in the Pali language means unslakable thirst. So the wanting that he was talking about is not an idle wanting, it's not a whimsical wanting, it's a, it's a insatiable thirst for things going our way, things that we get to be who we want to be and that we get what we want from this life. So the Buddha described this quality of tanha primarily as a kind of, as I said, thirst or greed. And greed and aversion are what the Buddha called the poisons of the mind. The poisons of the mind. When we are caught in those two great movements of mind towards what we want, away from what we don't want, we are caught We are not free. We are bound. So, now that I am the age I am, which I may tell you at some point, I like to think about what I have learned in my life. You know, when you get as old as I am, we have a perspective of years of living to reveal to us what we could not have seen when we were younger. And I find this quite wonderful, actually, that I'm seeing things that I, I could not have seen when I was younger because I was, I was, that wasn't what I was interested in. So if I reflect on what I wanted that I got and what I wanted that I did not get, well, I've learned a lot from both sides but probably more from not getting what I wanted. What I firmly believed at the time I needed, what I deserved, I want it, therefore it should be mine. And what felt in not getting it was like a failure. I also now know that getting or not getting what you want in this life, and I could not have seen this, when I was younger. It's not the end of the story. Not by any means. In fact, the more interesting parts of the story happen after we get what we want. 
or after we fail. In the fairy tales it says, and they lived happily ever after. Really? Really? Have you looked into that? I work with a student who is very successful as a businessman. He has made all the money he could possibly ever want to make. He has a beautiful wife, two children. He's, he, he likes his work. It's right livelihood. It's not harming people. But he has seen that getting everything you want is not ultimately fulfilling. So it's no longer interesting to him. He spends vacation time coming on retreat. He doesn't care about going anywhere. He just wants to be on retreat. And he's looking and searching right now for a way to serve. That is what is calling him a life of service. So beyond wanting more, beyond having more, there is life. And perhaps there's a whole different life that we on the planet can begin to explore if we are to sustain our life on this planet. So that's one side of getting what we want. Is that it? Maybe not. On the other side, when we don't get something we really, really want, that too is not the end of the story. Because getting what we want is so emphasized in the culture, it is quite common for us, when we don't get what we want, to feel some degree of shame. I blew it. I'm a failure. There must be something wrong with me. What did I do wrong? It's not at all uncommon to feel that sense. And so there's, you know, books, self-help books and courses and everything in the world to help you feel like a success. But that sense of failure does not need to be the end of the story either. I'd like to read something written by Billy Mills. How many of you know who Billy Mills was? Only a few of you. Okay, so he was the first Native American back in the early 60s, I think, to win an Olympic medal. I think he won a silver medal for uh, running when the Olympics were in Japan. This was in the early 60s. First Native American to win an Olympic medal. But because of the racism of the time, his picture was never put in the newspaper and his name was never mentioned. Can you believe it? It's hard to believe. But that was one of the sadnesses in his life. So he wrote this. He wrote this. I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. 
I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. So opening to this possibility that not getting what we want in every way in life can be a deepening of our wisdom, a deepening of our compassion. In meditation, on on retreat, we become intimately familiar with the wanting mind and all of its devious ways. I'm sure you've had seen some of this already on retreat. And of course, we bring this into our creative activity as well. It's wanting. Anyone familiar with meditation would know that it would be futile to sit down and say to yourself, okay, I'm ready for enlightenment. Let's, let's bring it on. I'm, I'm ready. Let's, I'm, let's do it. <laughs> or to judge oneself harshly if that experience doesn't appear on demand just because you want it to. Yet we do this so easily when it comes to our creative expression. We put so much pressure on ourselves to produce something that we like that we approve of, or that carries the significant personal meaning that we are searching for. When we try to will it into existence, it becomes a real struggle, does it not? Or we don't even try because we have so much invested in it, as Anne said yesterday. When our ego identity is invested in a particular result, we may end up someplace we don't want to be. The poet Rumi says this, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. So we have on this retreat a unique opportunity to explore the terrain beyond wanting and not wanting. To surrender to the reality of the process, whether it is a meditative process or our creative process. To become more familiar with the subtleties of the unfolding process. How is it working in us? How can we midwife in a skillful way what is trying to emerge? What do we need? The uh, artist Andy Goldsworthy How many of you do know Andy Goldsworthy? Some of you do. Um, There was a film about his life uh, where he goes out into nature and makes art out of what he finds out there. He doesn't bring anything out out into 
into nature that is not found there. So there was a wonderful film about his uh, work. And in the film, you see him at one point building a cairn of stones by, by the side of the ocean. And he builds this, it takes him hours to painstakingly build this cairn of stones. And then it collapses. And he builds this cairn of stones again. And it collapses. Third time, it collapses. And then they pan into a close-up on his face. At the third collapse, he says, I have not yet understood the nature of these stones. That was his response. He understood the importance of attending so carefully, so mindfully to the process not getting impatient when we don't get the result that we want. He saw that more was being asked of him. So this is something to consider, that when we lose, when we fail, when we feel challenged, that something more is being asked of us. It's not the time to give up, to say, I'm out of here, but that Something more is being asked of me. I'm not, there's something I'm not seeing here. There's something I'm not understanding. So don't take it personally. It's not the end of the story. It may, in fact, it may be the beginning of your learning to follow a more mysterious, intuitive unfolding. A more mysterious, intuitive unfolding. I believe uh, William Stafford said this. I wrote this down when I heard Anne yesterday. I'm not sure these are it's his exact words, but the sent- I think the meaning is correct. Only the golden thread knows where it is going. All we need to do is follow it. Only the caterpillar knows to build a chrysalis at just the right time. Once a creative process takes hold in us, once it feels responded to, once we feel the uh, connection to it, it will not leave us alone. And sometimes it demands attention. Because I have painted for some years, I... The, the, the golden thread is still there. I'm still following that thread. But I travel a lot, and so I don't always have a wall. I don't have the paper. I don't have the paints. I don't have the setup. So I now take with me a journal, manageable size, with good heavy paper in it. Because what I notice is that sometimes this desire, this uh, urge, this imperative, you could say, to paint is very strong. I particularly have times when I just want to paint dots. Dots are something like medicine or something that are is very uh, much... Uh, 
a great satisfaction to my entire being. I just need to do a lot of dots. So I carry this wonderful journal and sometimes I just give myself the complete satisfaction of painting as many little dots as I want. Now what is this ultimately contributing to the world? I have no idea. And I don't really care because it is nourishing something inside of me that there's really no negotiating with. I have a close friend who knows what I mean when I say I'm feeling a little dotty today. (laughs) So we were talking this morning about the critic. Are we willing to turn our demanding, critical, judging mind into a friendly curiosity towards all that arises in our process. The title of the retreat that is going on upstairs is Transforming the Judgmental Mind. And it speaks to this possibility that we don't need to get lost or caught in the effects of judging ourselves, that we can actually transform that mind, that judgment, and turn it instead into curiosity, into interest, into openness, into a desire to look more closely at what is happening. So I like to think that the awareness that we bring into the present, the awareness that we access as we create, is the light we take into the dark, like the imaginal cells in the transformation of the caterpillar into the butterfly. That this capacity to shine the light of awareness into our experience brings with it a new kind of intelligence. Like the imaginal cells, it brings new information to us about what is possible. It illuminates, it reveals, it gives us new eyes and shows us the way. A teacher said, if you do everything with an illumined mind, you will not get lost. When we shine the light of awareness into the unfolding process, as simple as a dot here, a line there, a little orange there, a little green there, we are entering the mysterious but intelligent stream of creativity which is always flowing. It's always flowing, always beckoning to us. We don't know where it will take us and we don't need to know. But we do learn that it is trustworthy and that when we follow the inner unfolding we will make many discoveries enriching our lives in ways we could not have predicted or planned for it's a process of discovery so I'd like to close with uh, a writing by uh, Shodo Harada Roshi It speaks for itself. In this passing moment, 
karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. So thank you for your attention this afternoon. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.